Our scripture reading today is Luke 21 through 18. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to his tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Father, as we um, spend some time uh, learning from your word, Father, we love you for the, uh, the word that you have given us. Father, we just ask that you would give us great understanding of this parable and uh, bless our Pastor Grant as he um, gives us his words, his thoughts on this, Father. We just know that you have inspired him and prepared him for this, and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Susan, thank you for a good morning of service telling us good stories from Thailand and the Word. Good harmonies and good songs. It's humbling to be part of a church family that loves the Lord. Last week's, open up please to, to Luke 10 and your, or I'm sorry, to Luke 10 if you'd like. If, it'd be fine. I'll be preaching in Luke 20, but if Luke 10... Please do open up to Luke 20, 1 through 18. It's good to see you this morning. You know, chapter 19 ended with a, an ominous passage. This, the last thing we read last week uh, was, and he was teaching daily in the temple. What dailies are these? Let's just put ourselves in the place. This is the last week. The reason the title of this sermon series is something about the passion or something um, is because this, all we are covering from January 1st through May 1st is the last week. It's all one week. So all of these stories, intense on their own, man, have an extra intensity when we put them in this place. So daily in that week, 
after Jesus has come into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, palm branches, you got all that, cleanse the temple the next morning. And so do you think the guy who, who like shooed the sellers out, do you think there was some tension as he showed up to teach every day? So that's the, that's the, the setting. So, um, and he was teaching daily in the temple, not like I'm starting my own temple over here, but no, that's his temple. This is God standing in his temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him, but they did not uh, find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on, the, on his words. So we see a couple of conflicts, um, or at least a couple of tension points. We see that there's tension building between Jesus and the scribes. And I'll remind you who, the difference between the priests and the scribes and then the Pharisees that we've been dealing with most of the book here in a second, but also there's this tension between the people and the leaders. There's something as Jesus is, is talking, it's ringing true in the common man's, and remember, this isn't just common people from Jerusalem. These are all the pig, pilgrims that have come to visit the temple to celebrate the Passover. Man, they are persuaded by the authoritative teaching of Jesus. Jesus is not teaching like one of the rabbis. He's not teaching like one of the scribes. He is presenting himself as Torah. He is presenting himself as the one who can teach truth firsthand information. And the people are buying it. It's compelling to them. This is causing a tension, not just between Jesus and the priests, but between the people and the priests, because what Jesus is teaching is antithetical to what the priests are saying. So this is the tension we bring into the story that Susan just read for us. And like so much of not just, the, I mean, I talk a lot about the kingdom and God and the kingdom of sin and death. And I only do that because it's on every page of the New Testament. You just can't read the New Testament without understanding that the primary conflict in the universe is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin and death are at odds. That we were born into the kingdom of sin and death. That the kingdom of God is not only an option, but is real and is among us. And yet, in the now but not yet nature of the world now, we are citizens of the kingdom. And yet, there is a constant clash. And we feel it all the time a constant clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin and death. So this is really the, the, the conflict that's on every page of the New Testament and certainly is at the forefront here. There's this clash of kingdoms, much like all of life um, in this kind of here but not yet state of, of existence now. The kingdom of God is real and among us. Do you have victory in Christ? Is peace available? Is joy available? Is death and sin and destruction all around you? Weird. There's going to come a time when that sin and death and destruction passes away. And right now, we're going to live with, it, with conflict like this around us. And this is what's happening in the temple in the first century as Jesus stands there. It's always been true. And this side of the second coming, it, it will remain true. It's one of the reasons we, we pray. It's one of the reasons we don't predict the second coming. We don't get into name, dates and names business, but man, we go, Lord Jesus, come. 
We've seen this conflict through the book of Luke, this clash of kingdoms, as the kingdom of God has crashed into the kingdom of sin and death in lots of ways. Uh, Jesus casts out demons. Jesus calms storms. Jesus heals the sick. That's absolutely the kingdom of God overwhelming the kingdom of sin and death. Things that are broken and a mess and chaotic become in line and in shape and tove and, and, and right. And that's what happens when the kingdom of God shows up. But as Jesus has had conflict with people, with the Pharisees up in Galilee, with all the Pharisees and all of the, the journey down from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's more complicated than conflicts with storms or demons. Because Jesus didn't, seek to see, didn't come to seek and save storms and demons. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So in the conflicts with a storm... It's, there's no, there's no discussion here. Jesus goes, be calm. In a conflict with demonic powers, there's no, like, trying to lead the demons anywhere. It's just be gone. But as Jesus comes in contact with people that are wrong, it is not just dominate and do away with. Rather, he wants to reveal the lie. The, the untruth at the core of their understanding. But Jesus loves Pharisees. We're going to find out today Jesus even loves priests and scribes that are absolutely wrong and opposed to, all the, opposed to his kingdom. And yet, it isn't just dominate and destroy, but rather it's, can I tell you a story that might cause you to turn do you remember when Jesus said, just play, we just, it was just several sermons ago, when Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel? It was the story of Zacchaeus. It wasn't as Jesus looked out, he says something else, as Jesus looks out over the, the, the ragtag, broken, lost, poor, possessed, sick people um, before the Sermon on the Mount, his heart breaks and he goes, ah, blessed are the poor in spirit. Even these poor in spirit people have access to God now. Isn't that amazing? But as he sees Zacchaeus, the, the oppressor, the person that we might identify as the bad guy in the culture, as he sees him turn, Jesus says, ah, that's the kind of guy I came to seek and save. Jesus loves the poor and the downtrodden. And Jesus loves the oppressor too. And I don't know about you, but that's harder for me than Jesus loving the poor and the downtrodden. It is, of course, one of the most reprehensible things a person can do to wield religious power in a selfish, abusive way. And that's exactly what these, these Pharisees or, or these, these uh, priests are doing. And Jesus wants to put a stop to the immorality, to the abuse in the Jewish priesthood. But it still seems like he wants to save the priests themselves. Maybe we should follow Jesus in that. That we would not put people into categories. That we would say, ah, oh, we want that whole thing destroyed. But maybe we would say, man, God loves every human and wants to draw them to repentance. 
Some people, though, need to be both stopped and saved. And I think maybe in our, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, me and you, our intellect and wisdom don't match Jesus. I'll speak for myself. I'm not that smart, not that wise. In fact, I look at how Jesus handles things and I go, gosh, that is perfect. How did he do that? Maybe we have a list of people that need to be stopped, and we have a list of people that need to be saved. And Jesus has the ability to go, look, some people need to be, the priests need to stop oppressing people, but also individually, Jesus loves every priest. In fact, there's a scripture in Acts that says even some of the priests were becoming Christians. So maybe these seeds that Jesus is planting here bear fruit after the resurrection. Let's notice that as Jesus is confronted by these priests, he doesn't take the bait that they're offering, he, nor does he, he really even condemn them. Rather, he tells a story that reveals. I'm sure they felt condemned, but it was not, you guys are the bad guys, you need to shut up. Rather, it was, can I tell you a story that reveals your heart? and warns them of coming consequences. That's another thing. I think that we can kind of say, oh, well, we're either soft on sin if we're not proclaiming people's demise, or we are too forceful and judgmental as we say sin is sin. Jesus warns of coming destruction, does not Make any bones about it. Like destruction, death is what the road you're on. That's where this leads. And if he wanted to, he could implement that right now like he does with demons and storms and illness. He could just cast these people out. And yet, he lovingly says, please turn. Please turn. Because where you're headed is destruction. And you know if there's pride in our hearts, man, where we're headed is destruction. Let's turn. If you're playing church, man, there was nobody more religious than a priest. That sounds self-evident. There was nobody who was more arrogant about what they knew about God. And yet they too needed to submit, needed to turn. If there might be priestly pride in us, we need to turn. Heed the warning. The destruction is coming, and yet Jesus has made a way. Has made um, is, his patience is evident. So let's look really quickly at, at the people in this conflict, the the scribes and priests and principal men of the city. I think you can kind of read that this is probably not exclusively the Sanhedrin, but this is the Sanhedrin's representatives. That this is the the city council in Jerusalem that are filled with Sadducees, a, a few Pharisees, and a bunch of priests leading the charge. And if we go and look at Old Testament, the priesthood changes a lot. If we look at the second temple period, like about the 400 years before um, Jesus shows up, the, the, the priesthood goes through a lot of changes. But if you were going to say, these are the overarching things, especially as Jesus is standing there, what is the role of a priest to Israel? This was it. They're to lead the people in prayer. They're to lead the people in worship. They're to lead the people in justice. And remember, biblically, justice doesn't mean the bad guy's getting what's coming to them. Justice means everybody has enough. 
If there are people in the town that don't have enough and other people that have too much, that is an injustice biblically. It was the priest's job to make sure that Israel was okay, that it was fair. And if there was oppression and if there was theft and if there was, if, if there was um, you know, imbalance, if there was a lack of tov, if there was less than an, an, an Eden kind of reality, that they would make it right. And it was their job to teach the Torah. And as we walk in and see the people that Jesus is facing, they have erred in every one of these. Their prayer is marred by compromise with the civil government. Their prayer is marred by compromise with Rome, with Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who is um, less powerful, but maybe even more rascally than his dad, Herod the Great. Rascally. I enjoyed that. I might work that in again. He's a jerk. Um, they have failed in their worship. They've been price gouging uh, people instead of, uh, instead of welcoming people into the temple to worship. They've been keeping people out with their burdens that they're not even willing to, to live through and, and, the, and the exorbitant prices that they're charging for sacrifices at the temple. They're failing. Justice? They are the ones getting rich off of the backs of, with, you know, secret backroom deals with Rome and, and uh, the, the, the oppression of the people. There's no justice here with these guys in charge. Teaching? Come on. If you listen to their teaching, you would believe God to be very different than God actually is. Initially, the high priest had been chosen by lineage and by seeking God. We have the, the line, the Levitical line, and Aaron's line inside that, and that's how we're going to choose the priest. But also, we don't need all those guys. We're going to seek God and, and see who he wants to, the high priest to be. During the time of Herod the Great, so a generation before, Herod had taken up the, the mantle of appointing the high priest. Now, that's a problem. But since Herod died, Rome had taken up the mantle of appointing the high priest so when you have caesar's appointee saying who is going to be the high priest in charge of prayer worship justice and teaching are you getting a little nauseous are you starting to see that this what jesus is dealing with as he walks or as he is confronted by these men i think it might be said that we could most most easily think of a priest as a mediator that the priest and basically, when I'm, when I, every time I'm talking about, like when I teach students, like if you come to Boys Bible at Trinity and there's a quiz, this is a priest, this is a prophet, I always say, priests like mediate going this way. The people come to priests for prayer and sacrifice. Prophets mediate this way. Prophets say what, what God wants the people to know. And yet in Jesus' time, this had really become one, one office in the priesthood. They spoke on behalf of God and then they received worship and, and, and you know, uh, were in charge of, of the people's worship towards God. It had become, they were the mediators, the full mediators between um, God and man, an intercessor, somebody who stands between God and his people. But as we stand here, there had been something that almost resembled that mediation, but it was actually light years away. Instead of standing between God and the people, the priesthood stand between Rome and the people. And when you have priests that stand between the culture 
and the people, instead of God representing the powers that be, instead of the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, we've got a lot of church history that reminds us that that goes well 0% of the time. Every time you hear the word priest, I want you to remember that we are a royal priesthood. That we don't think that being on the platform makes us special. That I am not your priest. Rather, I'm an under-shepherd. God's called me to a particular work. And the shepherds at our church, God has called us to a particular leadership role. But that it is leaders among equals. That the, those that mediate between God and man now, God has chosen the church for that. And we better make darn sure that it is between the culture and God that we desire to mediate, not between the culture and the powers that be, whatever that might be, whether it's a religious affiliation, denomination, whatever, or whether it's a, a social organization or whatever. No, we represent God in our culture. So over the last hundred years in Israel, a really big question has, has been argued. Who has the authority to teach the Torah? How does one get the authority to speak on behalf of God? Does Rome appoint the teachers? Does Herod's son appoint the teachers? So here it is. This is the apparent conflict in, um, in our passage today. They come to Jesus and two questions that sound very much the same. By whose authority do you do this? Who gives you the authority to say these things? And by what authority do you do this? Where does this authority come from as he teaches in the temple? That's kind of their gig. And in one sense, and we'll, we'll talk about this more on Wednesday, but in one sense, the question is pretty valid. If somebody came up to me and said that I didn't know and said, Grant, I have a word for the congregation, I'd be like, tell me who you are. How do I know that I can trust you with these people I love? And if that's what was going on here, you'd go, hey, maybe. But Jesus knows that there is a heart problem behind that question. They aren't marveling at Jesus and going, what teaching? Who gives you this authority? We're astonished. Rather, they're standing in judgment of Jesus. When they ask, by what authority do you do these things? Let's even think about what these things are. By what authority do you walk into our city as a king on a donkey? By what authority do you cast out the sellers who were cutting us in on the prophet? By what authority do you stand here in the temple courts preaching an authoritative way? And you know, Jesus could have pretty easily answered their question, how's Jesus' resume? Not bad. Right, not bad. Yeah. He could have said, oh, oh, okay. Well, born of a virgin, walked on water, filled every, fill, came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy and have done it. Um, healed, cast out demons, calmed storms, fed 5,000. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Would you like to meet Lazarus? He's standing right here. I'm God. The credentials are impeccable. If Jesus wanted to just shut these guys up, It'd be pretty easy. But instead, he asks these priests a question that reveals their heart. So while that is the apparent conflict, 
there's a deeper actual conflict. The question that's on their heart. The question of their heart. And can I tell you again, man, I just, I just, want, I just want all of us to leave here humble today. I just want all of us to leave here not going stupid priest. I want all of us to go, man, I just want to give everything to Jesus. I just want my heart not to be going, Jesus, by what authority do you tell me what to do with my time? Jesus, by what authority do you call me to give money or, or stop behaviors that are sinful that I like? By what authority do you call me to forgive people that have sinned against me? Instead, that we would just fall down and go, I get it. I know by what authority. You are God and I will follow you. Because here's the truth. Jesus has done enough to prove who he is to these priests. He has done enough to prove he is to you and me. The seed is good. It's the four soils we're dealing with. Is there too much busyness in life and love of wealth? Is there too much distraction in other things? Is there too much in one ear and out the other? Or is your heart good soil where this message of the God-man can grow and bear much fruit? That was true that day in Jerusalem. How much more true is it with the witness of Scripture and with the empty tomb that we have? Yet there was a rebellious peace in each human heart that is asking, who is Jesus to tell me what to do? That I would evaluate every, every time I read something in Scripture and it says, you got to kill this. you got to put it to death and put on love. And we would go, well, let's think about this. Are there any other Christian authors who have given me a way I could wiggle out of this command? I'll adhere to that. Man, it's just different to fall down and follow Jesus and go, just whatever you say. I'll just do it. So these guys ask a question that sounds like it's rooted in intellect. Like they want to understand something. By what authority do you do these things? But information isn't the problem. They have a heart problem. They're, not, they're never going to have an answer about the authority of Jesus while they are at the same time trying to hang on to their authority. We are never going to know who Jesus is while we are trying to hang on to our power, to our authority, to our plans for the future, to the American dream, to whatever it is. You can't have it both. You got to let go of all that stuff to hang on to Jesus. So if he wanted to win an argument, not a problem. If he wanted to cast them out of his presence, oh, how much would Peter have loved that? Peter, can you get rid of these guys? Oh, Jesus, I've been waiting three years for you to ask me something like that. Simon the Zealot, you think he wants a piece of the priests? I think so. Jesus is going to tell Pilate, in a while, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting. If that's what Jesus wanted, it wouldn't have been hard. But instead, he asked them a question. Was John's baptism from man or from God? And now Luke reveals how little these guys even care about the truth. And I think that's what's going on here, that Jesus asked a theological question. Was John the Baptist inside God's will or not? 
And instead of thinking theologically, instead of thinking about the things of God, they're thinking sociologically. They're thinking about their own place in the society. So when they huddle up to go, hey, and this is a common thing, priests, rabbis, they go, ah, we'll get back to you. Come here, guys. What do you think? I don't know. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Um, and as they're huddling up and talking about it, not one of them goes, was John from God? Did John do good work? Instead, they go, well, if we answer this way, it's just based on consequences, based on outcome, because that's what, that's what religious people who don't have a heart for the Lord do. We base our religion on outcome, on what's going to happen if I make this choice. You don't get martyrs that way. And I'm willing to die for this stuff. So they're just thinking about the consequences. Well, if we, you know, if we, if we say this, then they'll go, well, then why didn't you believe John? If we say this, they'll go, um, well, you know, we love John, so we're mad at you. And, and what are we supposed to do? The people love John. We can't, how are we supposed to answer? So they go, we don't know. We don't know. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not telling you by whose authority my authority comes from either. And I'd like to spend a few minutes thinking about Jesus' answer. Why isn't he more confrontational? Isn't this a good moment for a brood of vipers rebuke? Can't you feel a good old-fashioned like rebuke coming on right now? Like, couldn't Jesus have been like, I'm going to make a point out of these jokers right now. Aren't these the bad guys? Isn't this the oppressor? Aren't these the ones in bed with Rome? I bet you have a list of bad guys. I bet you know who in our society you just wish they'd shut up. I bet you've got like cute little Twitter pejorative nicknames you call them. Aren't these the bad guys? I would say this. We have much to learn from the way Jesus treats these guys. They're not the bad guys. They're the lost guys. So look what Jesus doesn't do. I think I have a slide for this. Jesus doesn't dismiss them. Wouldn't it be easy? Like that's my, I, I probably, I'm not super confrontational by nature. This would probably be my thing. Make a dumb joke. Use some sarcasm. You know, probably say something smart I like that made them feel bad. You know, something like that. Challenge them to thumb wrestling. I don't know. <laughs> I've never lost a thumb wrestling match. I'm just here to tell you, I'm the goat. It's not even close. Arthritis and all, I'm still good. But even with these guys, Jesus has said that if we would say to our neighbor, Raka, you fool, you empty-headed one, we're, we're committing the same sin as murder. We don't see Jesus be dismissed. He had, they have his attention. They wrecked his sermon. That ticked me off. But he's not dismissive. We too shouldn't give in to the temptation to dismiss lost souls in the world. Whatever nickname you've given them. We live in such a my way is the best kind of world. Like, hey, root for your football team, man. Do it and argue about it with your friends and, and, and 
you know, when it comes time to like put on your varsity jacket and go to homecoming and cheer for your school, man, just do it. Hang out with the marching band and have school spirit and do that thing. We just can't bring that into to our philosophical, ideological way. We just can't be dismissive with lost people. Jesus also doesn't argue with them. Rather, does, Jesus does all he can in a way that isn't argumentative, but is still helpful. They feel that Jesus is a threat to their power. Pretty clear. You with me? Does Jesus feel like they are a threat to his power? There's no debate here. It's not like, well, we're going to see who wins this one. Jesus can deal with them from a position of power, of truth, of wanting to draw them to repentance. The kingdom of God should be filled with hearts, with our hearts, so confident in Christ's love, so confident in Christ's position that we have no need to build up our own pride. We have no need to win every argument. Rather, we can make our lives, how can I tell good stories? How can I express God's love? Not, not compromising truth in any way, but also making it very clear that God has a place for lost people. The other thing he doesn't do is he doesn't give up on them. Maybe I chose those because these are probably the ways I would have reacted. To just go, hey, somebody just shut these guys up. Get them out of here. We're having a good talk. Just give up on these guys. These are a lost cause. Jesus' wisdom blows me away. How can he be helpful to hearts this hard? without fighting, without dismissing. Instead, his answer is dripping with love for these lost men. And it's tough love, but love it is. And we'll, you know, we see it. The parable that he tells is not particularly difficult to, to decipher. In fact, they know exactly what he's talking about. Everybody around knows what he's talking about. As Susan read it, you and I go, yep, got it. Who's the owner? God. Nobody said anything. Kind of weird. Okay. God. No gold stars. Class secretary, make a note. <laughs> Yahweh, the one these priests claim to be serving. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Israel is his vineyard. So one of the most common Old Testament images. God, Yahweh, is the owner of what the priests claim to be in charge of. The tenants are the priests. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't tell a story about servants left to care for land. Rather, the servants in the story are coming back into the land. Um, but he says, no, there were tenants there. Jesus is acknowledging the authority of the priests. Yeah, I've established a priesthood. You guys are supposed to be in charge. You are the tenant farmers. You're not just merely my servants. No, rather, um, God has left, Yahweh has left you to care for the flock, you to care for the vineyard. You're the tenants. The servants are surely every commentator except a couple, but, but the, the, the servants that come are surely the prophets from Elijah to Isaiah, including John the Baptist, those who God had sent with a message of repentance, would you just return 
Just give up idolatry and return. And that got met with rejection and calloused hearts and get out of here. And, and there were occasionally you know, times of turning, but mostly not. The owner's son is very clear too. The owner's son is standing in front of them, a claim that Luke has been making since chapter one, that Jesus is the son of God. And the destruction of the tenants is what these priests have to look forward to if they insist on continuing down the road. This is tough love, but isn't it loving? Think about what Jesus is saying. God's grace is so profound that you don't have to pay for the sins of your fathers. As you stand here, you stand in the line of prideful hearts that have been rejecting the call to return to God for hundreds and hundreds of years. But even now, if you would turn, you wouldn't have to pay for the sins of your forefathers. Not only that, but you don't have to pay for the sins of your past. Surely John the Baptist is in Jesus' view still as he's talking. He's the one who brought John up. And he's looking at these guys going, John the Baptist, the, the last Old Testament prophet, the one who came and, and had a work where people were coming and repenting and being baptized and, and returning to the Torah, returning to, to Yahweh, returning to faithful Israel. You guys sat by and watched Herod Antipas behead him. But even that blood doesn't have to be on your hands. If you would just recognize, if you would just answer the question of authority, if you would just follow me, there's grace enough even for a wretch like you. Man, by God's grace, there's grace enough for a wretch like me. Even now, you and I could turn. You know, we think of salvation in terms of are we in the family of God or not? It's valid. And maybe, maybe somebody in this room has been playing church and today's the day. Just give up. Just stop. Just stop being so self-centered. Just give up on your own authority. Let go. You're not good at it anyway. Just follow him. Just enter into the kingdom of God right now. But maybe there's some of us in the kingdom of God that have some pretty hard hearts too. And that Jesus might call us to give up some stuff and follow him. Think about this parable, verse 17, the owner says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. I imagine nobody would have thought that was a good idea. Three servants came back beat to shreds going, they hate us, man. They're not giving us any fruit. It is fruitless and violent there. That's the way Israel was, fruitless and violent. If that doesn't reveal the patience of God, if that doesn't reveal the love of God, I don't know what does. Instead of abandoning the violent and selfish world, he sent his son that if we might believe in him, we might not perish but have eternal life. Jesus loves them enough to give grace. The same is true for us today. But he also loves them enough to warn them of the coming destruction. It's not just, guys, it's okay. God loves you even though you've been dirtbags your whole life. God sets you as priests and then you have rebelled against everything that he's asked you to do. This is... 
this is okay. No, rather, as with the whole city, so it is with these individual men. The whole city, we, we heard last week about Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, compromise with Rome is only going to lead to destruction at the hands of Rome. Christians compromised with the world is only going to lead to destruction. But that same thing is true with these individual men. You come from a tradition of pride and rebellion. You've demonstrated hard hearts. Even now you could turn. But if you don't, the only right thing for this landowner to do would be destroy the people who beat up three of his servants and murdered his son. So Jesus ends the parable with warnings of destruction, but not only warnings of destruction, but humiliation. When the priests hear, hey, the landowner's going to destroy the, the rebellious tenants, that had to hurt. But then Jesus adds like humiliation to that threat and goes, and I'll put other people in your place. Not only are you headed for hell, but there's going to be Gentiles where you're sitting. Grace and truth. Warning and pleading. I think we probably all lean towards one of those or the other. Some of us, a good natural rebuke and warning and tales of destruction come pretty naturally to us. Others are a little more pleading and, man, God loves you and please. And Jesus has both in perfect measure. Holding on to your authority, O priests, will not only strip you of your life, but it'll strip you of your authority. So I would love to say that this was a Zacchaeus kind of story. Wouldn't it be great if they fell at his feet and were like, oh, man, we're going to give back everything we stole, and they don't. Rather, their hearts are not softened. Verse 16, I love this. Their answer is, surely not. Because that's what you say to the person who doesn't have authority to, to, to do what they're saying. They just don't trust the authority of Jesus. If authority is at the root of all of this conversation, they're just looking at Jesus going, you're a blowhard. I don't believe you. Surely not. How could this happen? Look at us. We're big. We're strong. We're rich. We're powerful. Verse 17, Jesus appeals to their own scriptures, says this, this is not something I'm making up, guys. He quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a Messiah. This was a messianic psalm. They would have understood this to be about the Messiah. He says, I'm the Messiah standing right here in front of you. A cornerstone, a Messiah would come and, we'd be, and would be rejected by many, but, um, but would become the foundation stone of the brand new temple. What a great reminder for us. These guys want to argue about authority, and Jesus goes, no, actually, it's just all going to be about what you do in this moment right now. I'm standing here right now. What you do with me right now is going to change the course of your whole future. And I think that's true of me and you. And I think it's true of whoever you think is the bad guys in the world. We don't have to fear any power 
We don't have to fear any forces. What are they going to do? Kill us? Your name ends up in Fox's Book of Martyrs. You all right with that? I can't think of a better book to be in, quite frankly. We don't have to fear. Rather, we have to follow Jesus' lead. We have to submit fully to his authority. And we have to treat people like he did. God has sent his son. There's no following him a little bit. Reject him or follow him. If you need that invitation today, if you are still messing around with, well, maybe, well, I haven't really figured it out, whatever, like we'll fill the baptismal tank tomorrow. Follow him. Baptism's not what saves you. It's just the sign of it. Is pride still a problem? I was baptized when I was seven. Pride's been a problem pretty much every year since. Lay it down. Just lay it down. Give up. Your authority or Jesus' authority. You can't have both. You tell Jesus what you're going to do or he tells you what to do. Those are your options. Where's your authority in conflict with Jesus right now? Man, if you still are wrestling in a way where you are saying, Jesus, by what authority do you tell me what to do? There's people that I like hating. There's people that I don't want to forgive. There's behaviors that just don't seem like that big a deal to me. God, you can have most of me, but you can't have all of me. Man, could I tell you that your future depends on what you do with Jesus today? He is the authority or he's not. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you be the authority in this church. Lord, it's not, it's not our way, it's yours. Lord, may that be what we believe, how we live, and how we go out from here. Lord, I'm so glad that, that surely some of these priests eventually did, after the resurrection, find their authority, find their, find their Messiah in you, but it breaks my heart that they could be standing there talking with you face to face and miss who you are. God, how many times has that been us too? <laughs> that, that you are reaching out to us, you are leading us, you are drawing us, Holy Spirit, and we're just hard-hearted. Lord, in our minds, I think this is a room full of people that in our minds, we are convinced that following you is the right way. And yet in our lives, in our hearts, we struggle sometimes. So God, if there's friends of mine today, if there's brothers and sisters in the room that just need to give up their pride, turn to you. Maybe say yes to you for the first time and become a Christian, enter into your family, or to just confess some prideful spots of their life. Then Lord, I pray that this would be the moment of salvation. Jesus name amen. We're going to sing uh, we're going to sing another song and and I'd encourage you to to sing along but but I would also encourage you to be meditative to think about whether or not the you know the words of the sermon are good or not but rather
whether or not Jesus is the authority in every aspect of your life. You probably are going to be really busy as soon as you leave that door, maybe until you enter it again. So you might just have a couple minutes to sit and think about the places where you could still submit to Jesus. Would you do that now?